Today in our text from the Gospel of Luke, we are going to discuss an acceptable sin. Isn't that the way that people often consider sins? They'll categorize sins. And some sins just seem to be a little more acceptable. They seem to be a little more tolerable than others. I remember speaking with a man who launched into a rant about all the blankety-blank immoral people out there in the world, and he took the Lord's name in vain in the midst of his rant. And I was speaking with a pastor about that afterwards, and this pastor reminded me that homosexuality, one of the things that this man was ranting against, which is an abomination to God, did not make it specifically into the list of the Ten Commandments, but taking the Lord's name in vain did. So, today we turn to the discussion of an acceptable sin in the eyes of our culture. And this sin also is found directly in the Ten Commandments. Our text is from Luke chapter 12. beginning with verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We see here in this text, the statement of a covetous man. Then we see Jesus' response, and then we see Jesus illustrate this truth to beware of covetousness with the parable of the rich fool. In verse 13, one from the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. In that culture, the firstborn son got two-thirds of the inheritance and also the privilege of distributing the estate of the deceased parents. As we consider this man's request, we realize that it's not so much of a request, but a demand, isn't it? What does he say here? Does he say, Teacher, come and judge between me and my brother and give right judgment in our case. No, what does he say? Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Just as a general principle, if you want rebuked, try commanding Jesus to do something for you. Remember Martha when she burst in on Jesus with Mary sitting at Jesus' feet? And she said, Lord, tell Mary to come and help me with all these things. Martha, Martha, you are concerned about many things. But one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen that good portion. Well, I've said that this man is a covetous man. How do we know that? We know that from the very response of Jesus. Jesus says to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And then he turns and says to the crowd, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance 
of the things he possesses. So Jesus refuses to take the case. He realizes that this man is not looking ultimately for righteous judgment, but he is looking for someone who is going to take his side in the matter, regardless of the circumstances. And Jesus was able to penetrate to the very heart and know this man's motivation in what he was doing. And thus Jesus gives this warning, beware of covetousness. It is a rebuke to this man. And it's a warning to others. Now we can only speculate what this man's condition may have been. We don't know. Jesus knew. But it is possible that perhaps he had already gone before a judge and his case had been denied. Perhaps he knew that he didn't have a case and that's why he was taking it to Jesus, hoping that maybe Jesus, who was considered a rabbi, would rule in his favor and he would get what he wanted. We don't know what his situation was. But we do know because of the rebuke issued by Jesus that this man was covetous and he was greedy. Take heed and beware of covetousness. Let's consider covetousness for a moment. First of all, we need a definition, right? You've heard the term covetousness. You've been told do not covet. You've read it in the scriptures, no doubt. What does it mean? Covetousness is intensely desiring to possess something or someone that belongs to someone else. Something or someone that God has forbidden you at that time. Look over to Exodus 20 for a moment. Exodus 20, verse 17, the tenth of the Ten Commandments. It says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. So notice this, covetousness desires to possess something that belongs to someone else. And that God has said, at least for the time being, is not yours, but it's theirs. So again, covetousness is intensely desiring to possess something or someone. Notice this, you can covet a person. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Intensely desiring to possess something or someone that belongs to someone else, something or someone that God has forbidden you at that time. And we should note here that covetousness will not be based upon whether you are rich or whether you are poor. The poor person can covet his neighbor's house, his neighbor's wife. A rich man can covet his neighbor's house, his neighbor's wife, whatever it may be. So that's what covetousness is, but what is it not? Covetousness is not using godly means from God-glorifying desires and motivations to improve your condition in life. It's not necessarily covetousness to want to purchase a different house. As long as you use godly means and as long as your desires, your motivations are godly motivations. You see, covetousness in particular is a matter of the heart, isn't it? It's a matter of desires. Intensely desiring to possess someone or something that belongs to someone else, something that God has forbidden you at that time. 
Well, covetousness also is not making an offer on your neighbor's house. For instance, let's say you want to improve your condition and so you go and you offer to purchase the house of your neighbor. Covetousness would be determined by how you respond if your neighbor turns you down. How do you respond? Well, as we consider covetousness also, let's remember that in Colossians 3 verse 5 it says that covetousness is idolatry. It is idolatry. Covetousness so strongly desires to possess someone or something that it will sin to get it or it will sin if it can't have it. It is idolatry. It is in fact worshipping something other than the Creator and you are showing that you are worshipping that something because you will violate the commandments of God in your desire to possess that thing. So covetousness is idolatry. It is so strongly desiring to possess something or someone that you will sin to get it or sin if you don't get it. Now, how do covetousness, how does covetousness and then greed relate? How are they connected? Greed, as we often define the term, would even be a broader term than covetousness. Covetousness flows out of greed. Greed is a selfish and excessive desire for more of something. More of something than is really needed. So, a difference between covetousness and greed would be that you can be greedy about something that you have. Whereas covetousness, as defined when we look at the Tenth Commandment, desires to possess something, doesn't it? So, the rich fool in this parable, he is a greedy man. He is hanging on to what he has and isn't willing to give and be faithful to the Lord with it. He's not in this specifically desiring to possess something that somebody else is, is he? But he's showing his greediness by hanging on to what he has. So covetousness desires to possess. Greed can desire to hang on to and to not let go of. It can desire to possess also. It's a broad term. But it can also desire to latch on to. So greed can be represented by the closed fist. Covetousness by the open hand reaching out to get something that belongs to someone else in particular. The rich man, as I have mentioned, was a greedy man. He was determined to pile up his wealth and to sit on the pile. His motto was, get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can. And so as we consider again those, the relationship between covetousness and greed, the covetous person is always greedy. But the greedy person is not always covetous, but maybe he is just wanting to hang on to what he already has, not wanting to possess something that someone else has. As we move on and look at some scriptural examples of covetousness and questions to diagnose our own hearts and whether we are being covetous and other things such as that, I want to make a couple clarifications right from the start so that we're all on the same page. 
The first clarification is that money in and of itself is not evil. Money in and of itself is not evil. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 it says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say that money itself is evil. We see rich men in the scriptures who are praised. Zacchaeus. After the Lord went to his house, Zacchaeus said that if I have wronged anyone, I repay them above and beyond what I have taken from them and I give half of my possessions to the poor. Jesus said salvation has come to this house. He wasn't saying that Zacchaeus was saved by his management of his money, but he was saying Zacchaeus was saved and the evidence of that was that he was using his money and his possessions for the glory of God and in a righteous way. Money in and of itself is not evil. Being wealthy is not a sin. We do need to remember also that saving money isn't sinful in and of itself either. Proverbs 13.22 says that a good man will provide an inheritance to his grandchildren, to his children's children. A good man will do this. So, saving money in and of itself is not sinful either. So what are some general principles? Money is a tool that is to be used for the glory of God. It's a tool. And we are not owners, we are stewards. God's the owner of our wealth, of our possessions. It all belongs to Him. And the scriptures teach so clearly in so many places that we are to be faithful with what the Lord has entrusted to our care. You can think of the parable of the talents and the men that were given a certain amount, each one in a different proportion. It wasn't wrong for one man to have one and the other to have ten. You see? How did they use those things that belonged to the Master? That is the issue. Everything that we have belongs to God and we are to be good stewards of it. So with those clarifications in mind, let's consider some scriptural examples of covetousness to help us get really concrete about what this looks like. What does it look like when somebody is intensely desiring something or someone that belongs to someone else that God has forbidden them to have at that time? Well, the first man, obviously, is the man in our text. He was saying, make my brother divide the inheritance with me. He's not proclaiming a concern so much for justice to be done, but his way in the matter. We have another example. Turn over to 2 Kings chapter 5, beginning with verse 20. Second Kings 5, beginning with verse 20. Naaman, a captain of Syria, had leprosy. Elijah heals him, or Elisha, I should say, heals him by the power of God of this leprosy, eventually, And here we see this account about Elisha's servant, Gehazi. But Gehazi, servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman the Syrian, while not receiving from his hands what he brought, but as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. Naaman had offered gifts unto Elisha for healing him, and Elisha said, No, I will not take any of what you offer. So the servant is scheming now. He has this intense desire to possess these gifts that were offered to his master and that his master refused. So what does he do to get these gifts? He says, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman 
When Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. Was that true? What did he do? He had intensely desired to possess this, and so we see that it had become an idol because he sins against God by lying so that he can possess this. Well, we see then the Naaman said, Please take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of garments, handed them to two of his servants, and they carried them on ahead of him. When he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand and stored them away in the house. Then he let the men go, and they departed. Now he went in and stood before his master Elisha, and, his, and Elisha said to him, Where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant did not go anywhere. Now he's covering it up. Common pattern of sin. We're going to see it in another example. Somebody sees something, they desire it, they take it, and then they lie about it and cover it up. That's something to beware of in our lives. Seeing something, desiring it, taking it for ourselves, and then what so often has to be done to keep from being discovered lying about it and covering it up. But he could not escape. Elisha said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence, leprous as white as snow. Here his lusting eyes coveted after this wealth. As a result of it, his body began to decay. And a curse was pronounced upon him and his descendants forever. The seriousness of this sin, this is not an acceptable sin in the eyes of God. Okay, let's look at another example. King Ahab, 1 Kings 21, 1-19. Do you remember this account? First Kings beginning with verse 1 of chapter 21. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near next to my house. And for it I will give you a vineyard better than it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth and money. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. Was that a wrong thing in and of itself for the king to offer to purchase this vineyard? No, not in and of itself. But notice how he responds when he is denied. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. So Naboth was recognizing here, Okay, this is my inheritance. It has been in my family. And it is not something that I am going to turn over to you. At that point, Ahab should have been saying, Okay, I recognize the wisdom of that. I am content with that. And thus I remove my offer. So Ahab went into his house sullen and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. There is the big bad king. <laughs> what a man. He can't get his way. And he goes and he lays down on his bed and he pouts. And he won't eat his food. 
And then comes wifey into the scene. Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Then Jezebel, his wife, said to him, You now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. What should he have done right there? He should have said, Woman, it will not be so. We will not abuse our power. He has turned down my request and we will not say another thing about the matter. But what does he do? He lets her plot this wicked scheme and carry it out. She wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, sent the letters to the elders of the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. She wrote in the letter saying, Proclaim a fast, seat Naboth with high honor among the people, seat two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him, saying, You have blasphemed God and the king, then take him out and stone him that he may die. So the men of his city, the elders and nobles who were inhabitants of his city, did as Jezebel had sent to them as it was written in the letters which she had sent to them. So they carried out her wicked decree. If ever there was a time for civil disobedience, that would have been one right there. They should have never, ever murdered an innocent man at the request of a wicked queen in the name of a wicked king. So they bring false charges and they carry out this atrocious deed. And then in verse 16, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up, went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Now he's happy. Now he got what he wanted. But the Lord was not asleep. The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth for he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. And thus Elijah carries out this message. We see the sin which was conceived in the heart of this man the sin of covetousness, intensely desiring the possession of this vineyard, that seed then sprouted and it brought forth this murder and then it led to these consequences. The dogs shall lick your blood. You will die an ignoble death because of your sin. Oh, we should take heart. Oh, we should take care. It is out of the heart that flows all of these wicked sins. And from the seed of covetousness, murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts flow. You see the consequences of those sins which take place, they start when we see and we desire. And then our hands want to follow our hearts and reach out and take. Notice this from Ahab. We've learned something here that we should remember. And that is that despondency, sometimes we might call that depression, can flow and be a symptom of the sin of covetousness and greed. Can it not? Notice how he responded. He went and he lied down on his bed with his face to the wall and he wouldn't eat. He needed to be on Paxil. That would have taken care of it. The Xanax. That would have fixed the problem. But what was going on? There was something in his heart that was leading to these symptoms 
And it was the sin that was in his heart. And the only way that that could be dealt with righteously was through confession unto God, repentance of his sin. Let's look at one final example in Joshua chapter 7. As we consider, what does it look like when people covet And this sin of covetousness, as I've said, there are many manifestations of that, but we think of lust. How often does lust just stay in the mind and not end up carrying itself out in the body? Not often, I fear. Not often. These sins conceived in the hearts usually end up coming out in the body. Joshua chapter 7. The children of Israel defeat a city called Ai. And there's a man there named Achan who sees some of the gold and some of the fine things of this city and he takes them for himself even though those things were forbidden him by God. Those things were committed to destruction. They were to be destroyed. They, in essence, were the Lord's possession. He had said, this is not something you were to take for yourself and use for your own good. But Achan takes those things. And I should say, after the, the destruction of Jericho, he takes them. Because the people are defeated at Ai because of Achan's sin. So there's this little city called Ai and they're just going to take a few people, about 3,000 men and go and attack the city but those men rout the people of Israel. And in verse 6, Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel and they put dust on their heads and Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Wow, Joshua is sounding just like the people wandering in the wilderness at this point, isn't he? Oh Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it surround us, cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things, and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you any more unless you destroy the accursed thing from among you. So, they go. And ultimately, Achan and his family are pointed out. And Joshua says to him, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord. In verse 19, Make confession to him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them. I took them. There they are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. You see this pattern again, don't we? He saw them. He desired to have it. He reached out and he took it and then he covered up his sin. So they went to the tents. They discovered the goods there. And Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Achor and Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. 
and raised over him a great heap of stones, still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Acor to this very day. You see, his family did not report him. They covered up his sin. They perished with him. The consequences of sin that started with one look and then a desire and then the hand reached out and took it. And it led to the destruction of an entire family. So this shows us what covetousness looks like, what it looks like for somebody to intensely desire something or someone that belongs to someone else and something that God has forbidden them. Here's some questions then that we can ask ourselves to see if we have covetousness or greed in our own hearts. The first question is, Will I sin to get this thing or will I sin if I don't get it? Think about the servant of Elisha. He sinned to get those things. He showed that he had an idol of the heart. Ahab sinned when he did not get it initially. In his response, of despondency he showed that he was not content with what God had given him and what had God given him the guy was the king you think he wasn't already wealthy will I sin to get it or sin if I don't get it a second question we can ask am I discontented or depressed when I don't get it Another question would be, do I desire what God has forbidden me? It's not enough just to not take something that God says we cannot have. We are not supposed to desire something that God says that we cannot have. And the taking it always will flow from the desire of it. So we've got to nip it in the bud, as Barney Folk would say. We've got to stop the sin before it starts. Another question we can ask is the question, am I consumed with I, me, my, and mine? Consider the parable of the rich fool back in our text in Luke 12. Did you notice when we read through that all the I, me, my, mine words that this guy was using? This greedy man? He says, there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, you have many goods laid up. Was he looking at the possessions as belonging to God and himself as God's steward of those things? No, he was not. He was greedy. So ask yourself, do I constantly say me, my, mine, I when it comes to stuff? Another question we could ask, am I jealous of others for what they have? Or we might say, oh, well, I'm not desiring to have what they have, but do you have a little twinge of discontentment when someone else talks about something the Lord has given them? What should we do? We should rejoice when God blesses others. So am I jealous of others for what they have? How about this? How much time do I spend thinking about getting more stuff? Am I consumed by that? Is my life just wrapped up in getting more and more and more of the possessions of others? Another question, does the thought of a huge inheritance or winning a big lottery or getting a huge monetary gift fill you with joy 
a joy that you don't have otherwise. Well, that might show that you have a greedy or a covetous heart. Should we not delight in the possessions that we already have and the gifts that God has given us? We'll consider that in a moment for how we battle against covetousness. But think about that for a minute. Are you just filled with a joy like you haven't known in the weeks before if you just sit down for a minute and think about what if I went out to the mailbox and there was a check there for $10 million? I mean, does that thought just make you giddy with joy? Well, ask yourself, why? And then ask yourself, why haven't I been joyful before, even if I don't have this? It can be so easy for us to fall into greed or covetousness. Another question, final diagnostic question, how much do you give? How much do you give of what you have? The rich fool here, how much was he going to give of what he had? Nothing. Nothing. He'd gotten all he could, putting it in the can, sitting on the can, piling it up for himself. The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. There I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Do you ever talk to yourself? <laughs> there are right ways to talk to ourselves. Like the psalmist, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Trust in God. Here, this guy's talking to his soul. And he should have been saying, Shut up, you idiot. <laughs> Don't even think that for a minute. But he says, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Greediness and covetousness is displayed in our checkbook registers. How much do we give to the work of God? Now, by clarification, we have to exercise wisdom. If we're living paycheck by paycheck and the Lord has not blessed us with a great crop like the rich man here, and we have to provide for our families or for ourselves, then we may not have as much to give as others do. But as a general principle, how much do we give when the Lord blesses us? Okay, so that is covetousness. And those are some ways that we can diagnose it in our own hearts. How does Jesus teach us to battle against this sin in the text? What are some weapons to fight against this? This so-called acceptable sin. Jesus gives us two things in particular. There in our text in Luke, in verse 15, Take heed and beware of covetousness, first of all. Secondly, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. So firstly, we need to beware. We need to be wary. We need to be on guard. We need to know what covetousness looks like and what greed looks like, and we need to be watching for it carefully in our lives. That's the first way we battle against it. Jesus says, take heed, beware of covetousness. The second way is, Realizing that our lives don't consist, our lives aren't wrapped up in the number of things that we have. So then we need to know what our life does consist of, don't we? We'll talk about that secondly. First of all, though, be on your guard. Be on your guard. When we're out running along on the road of life, the snakes of covetousness will come out and they'll sun themselves on the road and we have to be on our guards. I was out 
mom's place the other day where I spent many years growing up and remembering going jogging along the roads out there and I would head out and jog five or six miles out through the hills and then come back. One day I didn't time it quite right. I would run in the evenings. I didn't time it quite right. So I've still got about a mile to go and the sun has gone down. And it was to the point of dusk where I could see about 10 feet in front of me and that was about it. Right about then as I'm jogging along, I see this long rope-like thing right in the middle of the road that I'm just about to step on as I'm traveling about 8 miles an hour or so. It was a copperhead. The snakes were coming out into the warm road to sun themselves or to to get warm on that road. You better bet that my senses were alert then. If you had seen me, my eyes no doubt were wide and I was paying close attention as I ran. And as I ran, it continued to get darker and I could see less and less in front of me and I kept seeing these snakes and I would leap over them and keep running and then I would see another one. There was a whole slew of them out in the road. And I'm thinking at that time, you know, my thoughts are just racing. Wow, I wonder how fast my heart's beating right now. I'd say it's probably beating 130, 140 beats a minute. That means if I get bit by one of these venomous creatures, boom, the poison's going through my veins quick because my heart is racing already. And so then my heart notched up to about max, you know, I'm about 180, 200. And I'm running, and finally it got so dark I could barely see. And I came around the corner, and I had a quarter mile to go to the house, and I just let it all rip. <laughs> I thought, I'm just going to run so fast that even if, I, even if I do get close to one, they don't have time to bite me. But are we, are we on guard against sin, like covetousness? I mean, you think about an experience like that where you've been in danger, and every sense was alert. You were wary, you were watchful. You were striving to avoid the danger. Jesus says, beware. Take heed of covetousness. It's like this venomous snake. It will bite you and it will poison you from within and lead you to sin against him. The rich fool was not on his guard. Notice this. Did he gain his wealth by sinful means? What does it say from the text? He had a plentiful harvest. We have no reason to think that this guy was lying and cheating and stealing. But he was blessed with this enormous harvest, so great that he had to tear down his barn and build many barns to store this stuff. This guy was probably even being diligent to water and to plant and to see that this harvest was taken care of. But when the final tally was made and he saw the greatness of this harvest, he should have been on his face before God, praising God, yes, that God had blessed him with so much but then crying out unto God to guard him against sin. He was in a dangerous, dangerous position. Dangerous. In his case, deadly. When he had such a material blessing. When we get a substantial raise, we should beware. When we get a large financial gift, we should beware. When we get an inheritance, we should beware. When we get a windfall, the temptation that will come along with that is huge and we should beware. Jesus says, take heed and beware of covetousness. Yes, we should praise God because every good gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. But we should beware. We are in danger. We're in danger. But that sounds so foreign to us in our culture, doesn't it? 
Maybe maybe you're thinking right now, preacher, you're just blowing this way out of proportion. I hope you're not. But it does sound so foreign in our culture. What? You know, you just had this investment and it's just uh, quadrupled in value and you've got all these extra funds now. And you're saying beware? No way. Oh, but what does Jesus say? He says you're in danger. You're in danger. And think with me for just a minute. How often in the scriptures do you see warnings connected with the accumulation of riches? Or with discussions about money and how we're to use our money? We see warnings there over and over and over again about desiring to be rich. What does Jesus say in Matthew 6? You cannot serve two masters. What's he saying there? That money is a primary contender contender for lordship in your life. That we as human beings will tend to place our security in the number of things that we possess. We think that we're secure if we've got an emergency fund that will cover six months in our savings accounts. I'm not saying it's wrong. Remember my qualifications. I would encourage everybody, if you have the ability, put an emergency fund of six months living expenses in your accounts. Not as a commandment, but just as advice. But Jesus says we cannot serve two masters. And the admonition is to be content with the things that we have. To be content with the things that we have. So for us, then, if anyone amongst us gets a substantial raise or a substantial inheritance or a substantial gift, we should be, as the body of Christ, rejoicing that God has provided. But we should be going to one another. There should be accountability and prayer for one another. Because that's a dangerous place to be. Because of the temptation towards covetousness and greed. And those who are wealthy and godly with their wealth, they will be the first to tell you this is a huge, huge responsibility. It is a great responsibility. And God has gifted certain people to be able to do that well. But it is a dangerous place for anyone to be in. So we must battle against covetousness and greed by being wary, alert, and recognizing the danger. But that's the negative side of it. That's the put-off side of it, if you will. The positive side, the put-on side, Jesus said, our lives don't consist in the things that we possess. So what do we need to do? We we need to realize what our lives are all about. If we're going to battle against covetousness and greed in a righteous way, we need to know what our lives are all about. And it's not about stuff and accumulating stuff. We shouldn't define ourselves by our stuff. Only a fool defines himself by the quantity of his stuff. And, as we see from this parable... We know that we are spiritual beings and our souls are going to live on long after our stuff has been given to other people or has decayed or has rotted away. We're spiritual beings. We're spiritual beings. What is the counterpoint? What is the anecdote? What is the opposite of covetousness? Contentment, isn't it? Contentment. Contentment with God, or godliness with contentment is great gain. It's like love and fear. What is the opposite of sinful fear? It's perfect love. It's like oil and water. They can't mix. If you have perfect love toward God and your neighbor, you won't be able to fear sinfully. If you are content in a godly way, you will not be able to covet sinfully. It won't happen. 
So if I'm content with my house, I'm not going to covet yours. If I'm content with my life, I'm not going to covet yours. If I'm content with my car, I'm not going to covet yours. Now again, remember the qualification. I'm not saying it's wrong for godly reasons and with godly means to desire a new house or a new car. But yes, it is to desire a new wife. Don't go there. (laughs) Be careful with that one. But what I'm saying is that if the Lord shows us that it is His will for us to currently have this house and this car, that we will, if we are consent, not covet other people's houses and cars. And this is so key. Who is our life? What do the scriptures say? In Colossians chapter 1, who is our life? Chapter 3, excuse me. Colossians chapter 3. Beginning with verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Does that sound anything like not laying up treasures on earth, but seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? Seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. Lay up your treasures in heaven. Not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. So if if we're going to battle against covetousness, we have to first of all be in Christ Jesus to have victory over covetousness. And then we need to know that our lives are wrapped up in Christ. He has given us life. He has redeemed us. He has reconciled us with God. He has blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which condemned us in the eyes of God. He has died for us. We are raised together with Him, and we are united with Him by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when He comes, we will be glorified with Him. And what does it tell us in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. When I discovered this verse, it was, it was one of those I had to tell people. So I was running around here at church showing everybody in the Bible. Wow, look at this. This is fantastic. It says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Wow! We have a possession. Our lives are in Christ. And He can never leave us or forsake us. So if we lose everything in this life, if our life is defined by us being in Christ and knowing that He is ours and that we are His, then we can be content in the worst of circumstances. And we can battle against covetousness. What glorious truth. What a glorious Savior we have. Will we set our hearts on that which is not? Surely, riches make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. But He Himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Be content with such things as you have. We're to set our affections on things above, not on things on the earth. We should be thankful. We should develop an attitude of gratitude to our great God 
for what He has done for us in Christ and that we are His. And then when we see Christ as our life and God as the owner of everything, then we can freely, joyfully, cheerfully do exactly the opposite of what the rich fool did. And when the Lord blesses us, we will give abundantly for the work of the kingdom. We'll give abundantly for the work of the kingdom. Jesus said, the rich, the rich fool said, I'm going to eat, drink, and I'm going to be merry. And you know that saying, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. God said, you try and eat, drink, and be merry tomorrow you will be damned. He said, your soul will be required of you this evening. And then he said, such it is of those who selfishly are rich toward themselves but not rich toward God. What does it mean to be rich toward God? What does it mean to lay up treasures in heaven? Have you wondered about that? Jesus says, lay up treasures in heaven. What does that mean? A final thought on this. Look back at Luke if you're not there. What does it mean to be rich toward God with those things that we possess? What does it mean to lay up treasures in heaven and not things on the earth? It means to give things away in this life. It means to be generous with the Lord's possessions and use what He has given us for His kingdom purposes. And I think that this can be demonstrated from Luke chapter 12 as we read down a little bit farther. It's a parallel passage to Matthew chapter 6. And we see there in verse 29 of Luke 12, Do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an ancient mind, anxious, anxious mind, for all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what does it mean to lay up treasures in heaven? It means to give them away on earth. It means not to have the attitude of the rich man sitting on his pile. But it means when the Lord blesses us financially, we are looking for ways to give to the poor, to those who are in need, to the church. A church which is using the funds in a godly way for those who are in need, to support missionaries, and for the poor in the community. And there is a joy in that which truly surpasses the joy of receiving. Do we really believe it? That it is more blessed to give than to receive? If we do, and rather than intensely desiring to possess someone or something that belongs to someone else, that thing that God says is not for us. If we do, on the flip side, intensely desire to battle against covetousness, to recognize that Christ is our life and not the things that we possess, and to be blessed by God, then we will know it is more blessed to give than to receive. And we will have a joy... A joy abounding 
a joy abounding. And contentment in our Almighty God and His gracious gift to us of His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for what we have in Christ. All the blessings untold. Help us to be grateful people. Forgive me for my ingratitude toward You, dear God. Forgive us for the times when we have coveted and been greedy and been poor stewards of what you possess. And give us the grace to use your goods well for the glory of your kingdom. Thank you for this day of worship and for your word which gives us such practical guidance. Strengthen us to be faithful stewards. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.